Hello, I'm Rachel Babin from the Oncology Network. Welcome to the Oncology Podcast's Experts on Point series. Can we improve head and neck cancer treatment in developing countries in real time? In today's episode, I'm exploring how we can optimize head and neck cancer treatments in developing countries with Professor June Corey, radiation oncologist at Genesis Care. June's dynamic research utilizing technology and expert boards to provide quality assurance has many potential uses, particularly in countries with small and widely spread populations. And just a reminder that to access all of our free podcasts, including our brand new series on diagnostics called Beyond the Slide, registered healthcare professionals are invited to join the Oncology Network. Head over to oncologynetwork.com.au to find out more. I hope you enjoy listening. This is Rachel Babin, and this is the Oncology Podcast. Hello, I'm here with Professor June Corey, radiation oncologist and chair of the Head and Neck Service at Genesis Care. Today, we're chatting about June's latest research on improving head and neck cancer treatments in developing countries. Phase two of her study focuses on offering quality assurance in real time, which certainly sounds like a challenging endeavor. So welcome, June. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks very much, Rachel, for having me. I always like to start with a personal question, if I may, just to help the listeners to connect to you before we get stuck into the detail. You were originally trained as a medical oncologist. What motivated the switch from medical oncology to radiation oncology? It's a bit of a long story, but I was essentially working in Norway. My husband at the time was Norwegian, and in Norway, an oncologist is both a medical oncologist and a radiation oncologist, whereas in Australia, they're two separate specialties. So I had trained as a medical oncologist and suddenly found myself having to do radiation oncology, which I had no idea about. But I thought, gosh, this is amazing because it's got a much broader spectrum of application in both radical and palliative cases. Way back then, medical oncology was pretty much all end-of-life care. So it was just an exciting opportunity that I could just see myself doing and enjoying for a long time. So I came back with two little kids and retrained as a radiation oncologist. Gosh, with two little ones as well. It's quite a big challenge. (laughs) And what inspired your interest in cancer care in developing countries? Well, it's actually more, I've always been interested in improving head and neck cancer outcomes. That was the title of my MD uh, thesis a long time ago. And I've done a lot of radiotherapy quality assurance work for TROG over the last two decades. And in 2010, there was a paper published, one of those trials, 120202, which showed that real-time radiotherapy quality assurance actually had a huge impact on patients' outcomes, not only halving the local regional recurrence rate, but giving a 20% improvement in uh, patient survival. So I've been doing a lot of work in that space over that time. And then when the IAEA sent out an invitation for a think tank about a study we could do to try and improve outcomes for nasopharynx cancer in low and middle income countries. I put forward the suggestion that we could use uh, radiotherapy quality assurance as a mechanism for trying to improve patient outcomes rather than trying to introduce new technology or a new treatment regimen. We could actually just look at the quality of the radiotherapy that was being used. And so that was developed into a, a protocol which we've been using to further the same. Fantastic. Thank you. And was there a particular reason why you honed in on head and neck cancers? It's difficult. I like the fact that it's technically difficult. So there's a real acquisition of skill, but it's also 
one of the few areas in radiation oncology where it's equally as important as surgery. In head and neck cancer, about half the patients are treated with curative intent with radiotherapy or radiotherapy and chemotherapy. So whereas in breast cancer, for example, all the radiotherapy is adjuvant therapy. So you feel a much more bigger contributor to the patient's outcomes in head and neck cancer. So let's set the scene first of all, if we may. I'm hoping you can tell me about what the burden of head and neck cancers are like in developing countries. Yes, well, unfortunately, the role of smoking in head and neck cancer is well known. And in high-income countries, there's been a huge push to reduce the rate of smoking, and that's been very successful in reducing the rate of smoking-related cancers, whereas that's not the case in low-income countries. And so their burden of head and neck cancer is much higher than ours, but perhaps even more importantly is that their resources regarding healthcare are much lower. So it ends up being a huge problem for them. Yes, I think your research specifically referenced a few countries. Some of the statistics from Ethiopia really caught my eye. Well, yeah, our study involved countries from Algeria, China, Egypt, India, Indonesia, Pakistan, Morocco, Philippines, Thailand, Tunisia and Vietnam. And in basically all of those countries, the resources were markedly different to what example is in Australia or the US. So, for example, in Australia, we have a population of 26 million and we have one radiation oncologist per 75,000 of the population, for example, and that's similar in the States. And we have, say, one radiotherapy machine per 130,000 of the population. Whereas if you go to countries like Indonesia, that you're looking at one radiation oncologist per 4 million people or one machine per 3 million people. And Vietnam similar, and Pakistan is even tougher. We've got one radiation oncologist per 4 million people and one machine per 6 million people. So this is just, you know, incredibly tough to manage, I would think, for those people. Yeah, incredibly difficult position to be in. You can't really affect very much change when you're hampered in that way. And now to quality. How often are protocols violated during treatments in these developing countries? Yeah, so no one really knew the figures, even getting those figures of radiation oncologists and machines is quite difficult because obviously, you know, a lot of the infrastructure we have, they don't have in terms of statistics. But nevertheless, the quality was a little unknown. So the first part of our study was just getting a baseline of that. What was happening now? And so the first phase of the study was collecting patients' radiotherapy plans and having an international panel of head and neck experts review them. And it wasn't changed in real time. It was just documenting what the situation was. And somewhat surprisingly, the situation was that 60% of the radiotherapy plans had a what we call a major protocol violation. So a major protocol violation is where it's assessed that there's going to be an impact on tumour control or major toxicity to a critical organ like your eyes or your brain or your spinal cord. So they're not little things, they're big things. And we were all a little shocked at the 60%, as were the participating countries, I think. To be honest, we had a meeting after that finding to work through it. So we had, you know, showed examples of what we were referring to and think it was, it was a very educational session for everyone involved. I think a lot of us thought that 
the patients would just be presenting late and therefore there would be protocol violations that were inevitable due to the extent of disease. But in fact, this was only found to be the case in about 4% of cases. So it was mainly under-contouring of tumour was the biggest problem, either the primary or the nodes. Yeah, 60% is certainly a big problem. And it goes to show you that taking the effort to go through that benchmarking and collecting all of those plans from all of those countries is really insightful, although I'm sure hard work. So congratulations. On to phase two now. How do you plan to optimize cancer care in these countries? So having that baseline data, the phase two was similar, uh, the same protocol, but this time we were doing the radiotherapy quality assurance in real time. So the patients planned and the plans are sent Trog is helping us with that, sent to Trog and then one of the expert panel is contacted to give an immediate review. So we're doing that review within, trying to do it within 48 hours, but certainly within five days. And then we get our comments back to the treating centre and with the goal or the aim being that they will make any necessary changes before the patient starts treatment and that this will lead to a reduction in the number of protocol violations compared to phase one and ultimately an improvement in patient outcomes. What an incredibly innovative way to share global expertise. That's fantastic. So what's the timeline for this phase two rollout? Well, we're already well behind the timeline because we just got started with phase two and then COVID happened. And Oh, gosh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It had a big impact, particularly in low and middle income countries in terms of patients being enrolled on the study. So suddenly our accrual, which had been going along quite nicely, just halved in its rate. So that's uh, been a real problem and not unexpected. COVID had an impact on research in the high-income countries, but nothing like it did in the lower middle-income countries. So that's a problem. We're plodding along, but at a much slower rate than we were, and we're hoping that that will pick up. Perhaps of more concern, early analysis of, or sort of a, an interim analysis of our phase two data is concerning because there is still a high number of major protocol violations. But of greater concern to me is that they're not being modified before the patients start treatment. So we're sending back individualised reports to say that we think this or that or the other should be changed, but the patients are actually starting treatment without it being changed, which of course is going to uh, not have the impact we want on patients' outcomes. So we're currently trying to have individualised meetings with each of the centres to try and work out What's the specific reason for this? Because it's a little puzzling to me why that would be the case. And I'm sure frustrating as well that you have the system. Yeah, it is disappointing. That you've got it set up and you've got everybody in trog ready to go. Everyone's responding really quickly. Do you think it just comes down to communication that the right people are not getting the reports in time? Or Look, I'm very keen to hear from the individual centres, but I'm guessing that maybe it's a resource issue that if you – they're already planned and ready to go. If we then send back and say, well, you know, we think this needs changing, even though they're quite, you know, they're major things, it takes a lot of resources to replan and, and restart. So to us, putting the patient off for a week of treatment would be the preferred 
management, but it may be more that they haven't got the resources or the time to replan these patients or recontour them. So that's why we were very interested to hear from the centres because it may be different reasons in different centres. They may not like what we've said. (laughs) <laughs> and that's, that's fine. We can always discuss that. But we do send back, you know, screen captures of what we're talking about. And so it's fairly clear. It's not usually something minor or controversial. So, yeah, that's been uh, a big concern and is an ongoing concern, in fact. Okay. And how much time have you got left to run for phase two? Are you going to continue for a couple of years or...? Well, the rate we were going, we were looking we'd only finish at uh, October next year, the accrual. Obviously, we need to have a three-year follow-up of their outcomes of those patients. So we've just been really trying to encourage the centres to improve their accrual rates and get them back to what they were pre-COVID. And there has been some response to that encouragement, but it's still not back to the pre-COVID year. So yes, the worst case scenario is that we won't be finished accrual till October next year, but we're hoping it'll be earlier than that. Fantastic. Well, I do hope that, yes, you get to the uh, October deadline that you've set, because I think it's such a dynamic idea to utilise these global skills, our global connections. Yeah, I think it's a really exciting opportunity, not just for low and middle income countries, but we see we have the technology now that we didn't have 10 or 15 years ago. And I could envisage a situation where you have semi-retired or retired head and neck radiation oncologists who want to contribute. And this would be an excellent way for them to contribute their knowledge to donate their time and expertise to these sort of panels. We've shown that it works. It's effective in both concept and delivery. So I think that's an exciting possibility. And I think it's also relevant to small centres in high-income countries because there's been a lot of research in head and neck cancer particularly showing that patients who get treated in big centres also have a much better outcome, up to 20% difference in survival compared to head and neck cancer patients who get treated in small centres such as rural Australia or rural America. And so you could use this same technology to export that expertise to small rural centres in Australia or, or anywhere in the world really, again, to try and use technology to export the expertise that would improve outcomes of these patients in small centres. That's fascinating. Thank you, Jean. Are you hopeful for the future? Well, I'm hopeful that we should be able to use technology to help get better equity amongst our cancer patients, regardless of where they're living. I think that's exciting and there's some interesting work being done in that space. A colleague who I just met through this work, actually, Zerby Grover, she's working in Botswana and she's developed a smart app that is aimed at improving follow-up for Botswana cancer patients. I mean, everybody has a phone, even in low middle-income countries. And so you can use that app to communicate with patients regarding their cancer outcomes. So that's been really successful. And that's the type of technology I think does give hope. Sounds like a very interesting project. And I do agree with you. I think so much emerging technologies or a repurposing of existing technologies for healthcare is just uh, really fascinating. I think the next 10 years are going to be quite incredible. Well, I think that's one of the things COVID has actually contributed to as well. Certainly in Australia, it just telehealth took off in a way that was really beneficial, particularly for country patients. I mean, there are many times in head and neck cancer where you need to see the patient face-to-face to examine them properly. But you know, follow-up of treatments, there were many times where you could do it adequately with a Zoom 
telehealth. So I think that's been one of the good things of COVID is it's encouraged us to look at doing things differently. And I think that's really exciting. Yes, absolutely. And I think implications for things like teletrials as well, which are now going to be the way that we do things. Yeah. Well, I think even a lot of the data management can be all electronic now, which of course makes it much cheaper than all the old paper and filling it in and filing it. And so, yeah, I think there's anything that makes clinical trials cheaper is a good thing because it means then they'll be more accessible. Oh, fantastic. Thank you, Jean. Are there any resources you'd like to mention before we wrap up? Not specifically related. I mean, this project, we did have a resource through the IAEA website in terms of educational resources for contouring and dose of radiotherapy in nasopharynx cancer. So that was a resource available to all to all the participating centres, which I think was helpful. And I think there is an enormous amount of resources on the internet that can be accessed by low and middle income country clinicians. So yeah, I think they're very aware of that, but there's always useful things that you can find that can be utilised. Fantastic. Thank you. We'll make sure we include the link to your paper as well in the show notes. Any final thoughts or a key take-home message before we wrap up? Look, I think clinical research is so important to improving patient outcomes and I really feel it's so important to put the patient first and in the middle of all this because then everything else flows from that. I think people can get very excited with new treatment regimens or new technology but in my experience if you just put the patient in the centre of what you're trying to improve then everything else flows from there. Wonderful. Thank you, Jim. Well, I do hope that you check in with us a few years down the track when you have some uh, further data, because I think it's really fascinating. So good luck with everything. And thanks for coming on the show. Thanks very much, Rachel. I'll look forward to updating you. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to the Oncology Podcast Expert on Point series, brought to you by the Oncology Network. To hear more podcast episodes, head over to our oncology portal at www.oncologynetwork.com.au. Registration is free for healthcare professionals and will give you access to exclusive content such as our new diagnostic series, Beyond the Slide. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your colleagues. This is Rachel Babin and this is the Oncology Podcast.